My Govan, and welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel and the Tolkien Geek. And with John Borman's very strange script behind us, I thought I might move on to some other different stuff. And one thing that my wife convinced me to do, which I, I'm really late in jumping onto the bandwagon with this, is to watch the Soviet Lord of the Rings adaptation. And the background of this is kind of interesting. My wife actually has studied the Russian language. She even did a summer abroad program in school in Russia. So she's kind of familiar with a lot of Russian stuff. And this was kind of the, the idea. She's not huge into Lord of the Rings, but she's very interested in Russian and Soviet culture and history and all that sort of thing. So it was kind of a way for both of us to... I'm not sure I want to use the word enjoy... <laughs> <laughs> but both of us to watch something that's the same and both have an interest in it, at least. And it was an interesting experience, to put it mildly. Uh, just in terms of the production quality, of course, many of you already know, if you've been around the internet long enough, that the production quality is horrible. But what we found out, my wife found out this, actually. She looked it up. I didn't. But she found out that the production of the whole thing was basically done in nine hours. And with just what the studio had on hand. Which explains a lot of the costuming choices. So, and when I say nine hours, I mean they had nine hours to rehearse, do the thing, get it shot, and everything. It was done as a made-for-TV miniseries. They did The Fellowship of the Ring, and that was as far as they got. They never did The Two Towers or The Return of the King. And so the movie that we get is really only through the end of the fellowship. And one of the surprising things about it is how true to the original story it is. They do change up some really interesting things, but they hit almost all the major beats from the fellowship of the ring, even though they sometimes do it in ways that are kind of strange, but the overall quality of the show, apart from the fact that they had very limited costumes and very limited time to get ready, is surprisingly good considering what they had to work with, actually. One of the things that my wife noted when we were watching it was that she's been watching a lot of Russian movies lately because she's trying to keep her Russian kind of sharp, and the Russian movies she's watching are older than this production and yet way higher quality. And she was wondering why that was. And that's kind of why she figured this out. She looked it up and found out that it was a TV production, not a, a an actual movie. And it's essentially a filmed stage production, really. It's, it's shot on like a theater stage and then released on TV. So... It's kind of an unusual production in a lot of ways, and like I said, given the limitations they had, they didn't do bad. I mean, it's kind of like if you made a home movie with your buddies of The Lord of the Rings and had very limited options in terms of costuming, special effects, and everything else. If you look at it like that, it's, you know, kind of surprising, actually, what they managed to do. There are a few shots that they actually shot in the outdoors, Mostly just people riding in the snow. And this is one of the weird things. And they kind of... I think this is one of the reasons why they, they did a specific thing in the story. They mention in the story that the Shire in the Shire it's always summer. And then when they start actually going places, they we get these shots of them riding around in the winter. 
Doubtless this is because when they shot it, it was winter in Russia, and so the outside shots just had to be in winter because they didn't have years of shooting and all this stuff. And so in the inside, it looks like everything's fine and dandy. In the outside shots, it's cold and wintry and everything else. <laughs> so you could tell how their limitations kind of informed some of their storytelling choices. Uh, but like I said, most of the major plot points are actually there. They actually have Farmer Maggot, although he's not Farmer Maggot. In this particular instance, he's an innkeeper, which is kind of strange. Why they made that particular change is a little bit weird, but they kind of jump through a lot of stuff to try to get the story moving as quickly as possible. So that's, I think that's part of it, because they can't really have the the build-up to the farmer maggot scene. And so they just have him as a waypoint along the way where he's an inn that they've stopped at to, you know, on their way out of the Shire. They have Tom Bombadil and the Old Forest and Old Man Willow. I mean, they have some things that a lot of adaptations leave out, which was surprising at, at, on one level and in, I guess, some ways not as surprising. What surprised me most, though, is the fact that they kept true to almost all the main stuff in the story, despite it being a Soviet-era production. Because the the kinds of stuff that the Soviets stood for and would allow to be produced, you wouldn't think would quite reach to the Lord of the Rings, which, as Tolkien described, it was a fundamentally Catholic work. Uh, but nevertheless, they managed to start this production, and it's it's really interesting. And you have to wonder how much of that is due to the fact that the the themes are subliminal enough that the Soviets could let it slide versus... It was just a really popular story, and so they wanted to kind of make it their own just to have you know their own version of it. And as my wife points out, in the Soviet era, one thing that they would do a lot is they would take great works of art, have their you know their trained artists go to other places and basically make copies of it and then bring it back as if they had the original. And so they were constantly trying to show up their own civilization and culture by doing stuff like this, so did that have any role in the, you know, production of a Lord of the Rings adaptation? Eh, given the quality involved, I doubt it was quite the same thing, but nevertheless, it surprised me that they were able to do this in the Soviet era. Now, it was the very end of the Soviet era, so this this is probably during the Glasnost and Perestroika period under Gorbachev, so that might help explain it as well, but it it was just interesting to me that it got made at all. And that's part of the reason why they never made it to the Two Towers and the Return of the King. This was right before the Soviet Union fell, and then, for whatever reason, that's, that's as far as they got was the end of the Fellowship. But So let me just note a few things. Since the plot line is mostly the same, I'm not really going to describe the plot a whole lot, and you could probably get more of a plot breakdown on, like, I think Nerd of the Rings did a full watch-through of the whole thing on his channel, if I remember correctly. I know he did something with this. I never watched the, the video itself because it was too long, uh, and I just can't keep up with everybody. But you could get the whole thing, and of course it's on YouTube. With and you got to be careful, though. you got to pick one with good English subtitles. The first one we tried had terrible translation, absolutely terrible. But if you find one with good translation... 
it's it's obvious that it's good translation because you can tell they're pulling quotes straight out of Tolkien. So the interesting things about this in terms of the production quality, as I mentioned, include the costuming choices. Like they have the Barrow Whites episode, but the Barrow White is basically a clown. And given what they have to work with, I mean, that that kind of works as a ghost-slash-skeleton-type creature, I guess. Um, and then you've got other weird costuming choices like that, too. You have other interesting things like Aragorn has a... And it's a really obvious stage scar, but it's a scar on his forehead-slash-temple. And it's like, why would you... Why would you give Aragorn a scar exactly? Um, Elrond has like a goatee, and it's really funny to look at when you realize that Elrond is not supposed to be bearded. But of course, with only the Lord of the Rings to work at to to work with, you wouldn't necessarily know that. Uh, some of the other weird things is the music. Some of it sounds kind of like, I guess, Russian folk music. But then they have some of the like the the score, I guess you might call it, for the production. Every time the Black Riders are on screen or something is scary, you get the same exact sound, and it's really monotonous and not very, not very even creepy. You could tell it's like, ooh, evil, bad news type music, if music you call it, but it's it's not very good, and a lot of the music in this is not very great. There, of course, is the infamous scene where Gandalf is recalling his escape from Saruman and his flying on the eagle, and it's just him waving his arms in the back like he's trying to balance, and then an eagle kind of superimposed in front of him, and it's, it looks so corny. But again, with what they had to work with, hard to do much better. So, and then they have the the trip through Moria, which they don't, really treat as a trip through Moria. They kind of skip over some of the significance of the history of Moria and all that because they just don't have the time to develop it. But they get into Moria, of course, and it just basically is just weird caves. And it's not even 100% clear that they're anywhere... I'm trying to remember how they set it up because it's been a while since I watched it now and I didn't take a note of it, but it was a weird set up for the area. It was definitely not like in the book. And then, you know, we get past that and we get in Lothlorien and some of the stuff that goes on is just the the way it's handled is just some of the weird stuff. Like the like I said, the farmer maggot thing being he's not a farmer, he's just a a, a bartender at a bar or an inn. It's just you could see why they did it, given the rushed nature of the production. Because, again, you can't really lead up to, oh, we're on Farmer Maggot's land, and he scared me off, and he's a farmer, and then he gets invited into the house. They didn't have time to go through that much lead-up and development. So, at Farmer Maggot's is when we get the idea that Frodo's trying to get out of the Shire kind of incognito, because the far- Farmer Maggot, or Bartender Magnet Maggot, <laughs> says something along the lines of, Oh, everybody knows who you are. And the way it's done is kind of clunky. But they're trying to, again, rush through and set up stuff. Another weird thing is Tom Bombadil is a giant. 
straight up giant, like huge, like can pick up the hobbits with one hand giant. And it's a weird choice because, of course, specifically in the book, he is said to be taller than a dwarf, but not really tall enough to be one of the big people. So why did they choose to make him a giant? Maybe it's just to make him seem more magical and outlandish. I don't know. That was kind of a weird one. The other weird thing is Gimli the Dwarf, who says almost nothing in in this production as far as we ever see, he's actually shorter than the hobbits, and the hobbits are all just about as tall as, you know, men and elves, <laughs> which is kind of just funny. One Another plot point, I forgot to mention this one first up because it comes actually at Bilbo's party, which is where the story begins. Bilbo is seemingly on at least halfway decent terms with Lobelia Sackville Baggins, who is, her portrayal is, given, again, what they had to work with, interesting, because you could tell that she's got some kind of animosity going on with Bilbo, but it doesn't seem like quite the same thing that is actually the case in the book. So it's just kind of a... a a weird but interesting thing seeing how they adapted that given that they had little time to flesh out some of these elements of the story. But they start off again saying like the Shire is, it's always summer and Frodo will actually mention this kind of stuff in the course of the story that, you know, it's winter out there and I don't want to go on in winter. And that's one of the things that I really didn't like about this one. Frodo comes across in this one as a whiny, I don't want to do anything type. He also came across as, to me, one of the worst actors in the bunch. And, of course, it's hard to tell when you're watching somebody speak in a completely foreign language. But his expression almost never changed. He always had kind of this deadpan expression. No emotion. Just seemed very, you know, I'm here to recite the lines and that's it. The person portraying Gandalf, I thought, did pretty well, again, as far as I can figure from you know, trying to figure it out through tra- not not being able to translate my own Russian. But another thing about the production is, in a lot of scenes, especially where there's only one or two people, a lot of the acting is done to the camera. They're, you know, speaking directly to the camera rather than to each other, and this happens a lot. And I think it was intentional because it was it happens so much, and you'd think if the director didn't want that, they would make sure that they're talking to each other. But I think it's partially because it's kind of like a film stage production. That's kind of how stage productions work a lot of the time is because of the nature of the sound and acoustics of a theater production, you have to act to the audience to get your voice across, right? So I have a a feeling that may be part of that. Another really weird thing is the story is kind of being narrated by this guy that we get cuts to every once in a while who is dressed kind of like a hobbit, I guess, and he's smoking a pipe. And you could kind of tell what they were going for with him. But the problem is, half the time when they cut, you know, I'm underestimating, it's probably more like three-quarters of the time, when they cut to this guy in mild interludes, he doesn't even say anything. He just stares at you with his pipe, and you're like, why? Why are we cutting back to this guy if he's not going to give us, you know, some narration, exposition, something? 
what's the point? And after a while, it just becomes almost creepy the way they do it because he just stares at the camera like, hmm. And I'm just, I don't know. That was one of the strangest things about the production. But overall, the impression I came away with was it was pretty good for a home movie. (laughs) And it has Tom Bombadil. So naturally, I have to rate it 10 out of 10. Right. I mean, it's got Tom Bombadil, Barrow White's Old Forest and all that. I mean, it's just got to be 10 out of 10. Seriously, though, um, like I said, for a home movie, it's perfectly fine. For an adaptation that you would hope for out of a Tolkien story, the quality is really low. So, you know, go in with low expectations and it's actually kind of enjoyable as long as you don't mind having to read captions the whole time. But it, you just have to really set your expectations low for this thing, guys. <laughs> but it's also funny. I mean, we get, like I said, the, the clown face Barrow Whites, which is just, you have to use your imagination a lot to really get past that. But if you can, it kind of works. Gollum is kind of the same. You know, he looks like a frog. And then there's a couple of scenes where they just do... I don't even know what they're trying to do, but it's like the there's characters that are just in the background kind of doing some weird gyrations in the in the background scenery, if you could call it scenery itself is also weird and you have to wonder like were these guys doing some of the same stuff that Borman was doing whenever he wrote his script because it seems kind of like an acid trip. Uh, I want to say one of the one of those happens when they arrive in Lothlorien or encounter elves somewhere because I remember there being elves doing weird stuff and I'm like, what do y'all think elves are exactly? <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, there's not a lot to say about it without going into just huge amounts of detail, and I don't think it's necessarily worth going into that much detail, but I did want to give kind of a little bit of background uh, for those who might not be familiar with the background and give kind of an impression of, you know, kind of the weird decisions they made, but also the logic behind some of those decisions and just some of the weird ways that they do things that just might make your eyes roll. (laughs) But, you know, if you want a laugh go and watch it. If you want to see what it might look like if you and your buddies went and did a home movie, go and watch it. If you just want to get an idea of what somebody with an incredibly limited amount of time and resources could do and yet be kind of mostly faithful to the story, it's also interesting just on those grounds. So it's its primary value, I think, is not in its entertainment value because, like I said, the production quality is low. Some of the acting is really... Some of the actors seem to be, uh, you know, really good actors, but like I said, Frodo didn't seem to be a very good actor, and his portrayal in the the writing of his character was just so off-putting because he's such a whiner. Uh, But its primary value is in terms of kind of comparing what you can do with absolutely minimal budget, minimal resources, minimal time, and still kind of make it work in in some way. So 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting just in those terms, and I think it's worth a watch on those grounds if you're interested in that kind of thing. Like, if you're just interested in how adaptations get made, the choices they have to make, this is actually an interesting example of that, because you can see how, given better time and better budget, the story would still be pretty interesting, despite including a lot of things that most adaptations leave out. So... You know, it's actually a good barometer in that sense for do we really have to make those kinds of sacrifices in a Lord of the Rings adaptation? You know, maybe not. So, anyway, go watch it. It's interesting. It'll be linked in the description below. The version that my wife and I watched, I will link below because that one has at least reasonably good translation subtitles. So you don't have to go searching high and low for it. Because there are a bunch of them on YouTube that you can find. It's free on YouTube. You can just you know watch it, but you got to make sure you pick the right one. So I'll link the one that we used in the description below. It's in two parts. So check that out. Let me know what you think about it. It's, it's a trip. <laughs> that being said, if you, you know, I hope you enjoy watching it. Or if, if you don't even want to watch it, that's fine too. But I hope you at least enjoyed getting a little bit of background on it and learning something about what what it was all about. And, you know, check out my social links in the description below. If you want to catch me on podcasts, I'm on Podcatchers, alternate platforms in the description below as well. And until the next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek, signing out for the Tolkien Lore Channel. Namadie. Thanks to all supporters of the channel, especially Elf Friends PA Brew News, Tracy Meehan, Nathan Dufour, and Paul Leone.